It's good to be with you all today. I am, I am not quite back full-time, if you haven't noticed. I am just in, delighting way too much in our little son, Reed. He's eight months old now, and some new tricks he's got going on. Just this weekend, he, um, he started climbing the stairs. And, yeah. And, uh, and he whistles, which is super fun. I don't know if he's doing it on purpose yet, but it's, it's a really fun little thing. He also is eating absolutely everything in sight. Yesterday, I tried to give him eggs for the first time, and I tried to stick them on the end of a little baby fork, and then I tried to stuff them in his mouth. And he wasn't, he wasn't into it at all, you know. And, but then I spread it all out on his tray in front of him. And then like both handfuls at the same time, just like stuffing it in his mouth, you know. Could not convince him of the goodness of eggs, just shoving it in his mouth and to lay it out for him. Turns out he likes eggs more than bananas. Like what, what kind of baby is this? So fun. He's a really fun guy. Um, today, it's no secret that we're, we're going to tackle um, some pretty tough questions in terms of gender and sexuality. And let me just encourage you from this little parental lesson here that uh, I'm not giving you truth to then stick on the end of a fork and try to shove it in someone's mouth, okay? It's not going to work out very well like that. Uh, let's just consider spreading out the goodness of God on a tray in front of people in our lives. And, uh, and, and see how they, they taste it. The first, first taste of God's truth, they, they, you know, their face might squish up a little bit like a baby's, you know. Um, but then I, I pray that over time and with mercy and with an experience of the goodness of the truth of God's word, they might want to gobble it all up. Okay, does that work for us? So let me pray for us to that end. Lord, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your truth, and thank you that your truth comes measured with your grace. They come as one package because you, you come as a, as, a, as a whole person to us in the person of Jesus, grace and truth embodied. God, would we look to you and see all that is good for us today. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. In, uh, in preparation for this, you should know I did not get stuck with these questions. I asked for them. I, I care actually really deeply about this issue, as I know so many of you do, because it's a very personal issue. There's a lot of friends and family in my life that I care very deeply what it will sound like to them if they were to download and listen to this message. So I asked for this. Uh, you should know that. I have been consistently drawn to one story of Jesus through these weeks. And it was not clear to me until last weekend exactly why this particular story of Jesus was resonating so much. It's a particular story where Jesus is so trapped. He's intentionally trapped. I'm, I'm not. But he was really trapped. And the trapping was between, is in a situation that really called for mercy but where truth would deny it. And so I suddenly realized I, um, it, was, it was like this major light bulb. Oh, I feel trapped. <laughs> That's why I'm resonating with this story. With the questions of gender and sexuality, they can really feel like landmine questions. Can I get a head nod from anybody else who's feeling a little trapped? Okay, good. I appreciate that. 
So here's our, here's our two options. Um, as the politics do, I'll state it positively and I'll state it negatively, okay? So the positive argument is that the Bible consistently affirms that we have been created in the image of God, male and female, two distinct and unique genders that were intended to together image who God is to the world. And then furthermore, that God calls us to what I want to call holy sexuality. I've learned that word um, elsewhere, but I love it. He's called us to holy sexuality. Again, two options, either chastity or one man united to one woman, the two becoming one flesh, not to be divided. As it says in Genesis, Jesus reiterates in Matthew, Paul reiterates in Ephesians, and is consistent from Genesis to Revelation without a single exception. Let me just add to that case that it has been that case for two millennia, and the global church outside of the Western church continues to affirm this positive argument. It's following the biblical narrative, the meta-narrative, the overarching story that God loved us enough to die for the rift caused by the sin that we are born with. If you hold this, you get to hold true to God's word, but you are labeled as legalistic and potentially hateful and bigoted for attacking someone's core identity. Second, stated negatively, the Bible does not, this this would be the argument, the Bible does not refer to the gay marriage situation we see directly. Particularly, the homosexuality of the Bible is not the homosexuality we see today, and we should be a people of grace, accepting all those who people want to love. They're following a biblical meta-narrative that God loves us and wouldn't make us in a way that our desire for love is broken, somehow broken. Therefore, you can find satisfaction in whomever person or in living whichever gender And God would permit it. You'd be embraced by the secular world for being so like Jesus because love wins. There's two problems with this, I think. Um, There is what you've learned in the story about the overarching story of God. Um, The story that you practiced. We practiced this last week in the story. That we are all sinners, But God loves us in spite of ourselves and calls us to be changed, to be like him. And that change that he offers us is good news. Um, I'll give you that the homosexuality that scripture refers to is not referring to today's monogamous civil marriages. But it is referring to sex between a man and a man and a woman and a woman. And that definition has not changed. So there's the trap of the question. What does the Bible say about gender and sexuality? And I know that you feel even more trapped as I do as you move to not only take that truth in, but to respond, to move to respond to those who reject the traditional understanding of scripture because I hear it in your questions. Here's your stack of questions. Guys, they are so good. (laughs) I highlighted every single one of them, and I wouldn't be ashamed to read or to respond to any one of them. You should know that. Um, But here's two. Why are Christians so unaccepting of homosexuality? I can't believe Jesus would reject so many people. Or how do we respond to our gay children who say they can't go to church because the church judges them and their lifestyle? 
I hope that if you are here and you are struggling with issues of gender and sexuality, I hope you experience in this community the heart that I hear in these questions. A heart that genuinely wants to love, genuinely wants to welcome, but is really unclear about where Jesus stands on this. And I hope if that's you, that you are willing to come and to bring your wrestling to the people of God in the church. And I am going to ask that you would please consider holding off on any gender reassignment or on sexual behavior until you are totally clear on what Jesus has to say about this. And I would welcome that dialogue. But I'm also going to ask you to understand that um, based on these questions, I recognize that the majority of the people here um, in the church, at least the people asking the questions, are mostly parents and friends who are wondering how to wrestle with this issue for those who are not following Jesus and who are not here. So please allow me the space in this sermon to just respond to the questions that have been asked. If you have further questions, we welcome them. We have back at the Connect Center, little blue, right back at your cards. Write down your question and we'll respond to those via a video blog this Tuesday. So let's get into the story of Jesus. I want you to listen for two things in particular. I want you to listen for the posture of Jesus, and I want you to listen to the words that he speaks. So the sermon I'm going to, or the, the uh, story I'm going to tell is from John chapter 8, but I just want you to listen to the story. I just want to tell you the story, okay? So Jesus is in the habit this particular week of traveling in and out of the city. He's sleeping on the Mount of Olives and coming into Jerusalem during the day. And he gets up early one morning and he comes into the city and he comes into the synagogue. And the scribes and the Pharisees, those are the official religious people, bring before Jesus a woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they say to Jesus... The law of Moses says that we are to stone this woman. What do you say? Okay, I need to pause in the story for a little cultural context. First of all, you should know that stoning was remarkably unpopular. Nobody was doing it. And that um, adultery was super common. Like everybody was doing it. And so to bring before Jesus a woman... caught in the very act of adultery, never mind the fact that the man's not there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. There you go. And that John records that their motive was to trap Jesus, to find a charge to bring against him. Okay, we're very clear about the motive. Let's just recognize that Jesus is in a space where they are bringing Jesus an unpopular, traditional, biblical law against the sexual sin that everybody's winking at and they're asking, what are you going to do about it? Do you see why I resonate with the trap? Why you might resonate with the trap that Jesus is caught in. If he were to say, I'm going to be lenient and follow his reputation for compassion, then he will not be considered a legitimate Bible teacher He's out of the synagogue as a rabbi and the Pharisees win. Furthermore, if he stones her, he's actually going against the secular law that wouldn't allow him to do that. If he affirms the law of Moses, 
then what a radical legalist he is and how barbaric a consequence. Darned if he does, darned if he doesn't. What does he do? This is what Jesus does. Is this satisfying to you? This is all Jesus did initially. He just bent down and he wrote in the dirt. I imagine that by bending down in the middle of the synagogue in a crowd where a woman's been dragged in, I imagine he could hear her down here. Don't you think? I'm, I'm just painting the picture of the scene here. He could hear her sobbing. He could really see her. He's taking time here. He's holding back his opinions. He's not sitting in judgment. He's not standing in authority. He's just bending down and listening to this woman. And then he stands up and he tells uh, the Pharisees and the scribes, I tell you what, whoever is without sin, you can throw the first stone. And then it says they left one by one, beginning with the eldest. And just the woman's left there. So Jesus stands and speaks to her and he says, where'd they go? Is there anybody left to condemn you? She says, no, no one. And Jesus says to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here's Jesus trapped like we all feel trapped, an unpopular sexual law that calls the sexual practice everyone's doing wrong and no one wants to say otherwise, but to say otherwise goes against God's truth. Watch the posture of Jesus. He bends down and listen. I desire for us to be a people who bend down and listen when we feel stuck, when we don't know the answer. I imagine... Um, that by, that by bending down, you're giving somebody the time to pour out their pain. In the Orlando shooting a couple weeks ago, I um, have really good gay friends who live in Florida. And they don't live in Orlando, so I assumed that they wouldn't be there. But I really didn't know how to, how to respond, how to interact with them. And then I saw um, on, fa- on Facebook a posting by Jen Hatmaker. She's a Christian speaker. I think we have that, Brandon. Um, it says, don't say nothing. And it convicted me to call. I didn't know what to say. But I realized that if there had been a shooting specifically targeting white moms in suburban Costco's, then by golly, I hope somebody would have called to check on me. Do you know what I mean? Right? So I called to check on him. No one in his family had called to check on him. And I was the only Christian he was talking about, talking to about it. And so for a half hour, he just poured out his pain. I just listened. Let's be a people who bend down and listen, not sitting in a seat of judgment, not standing in a place of authority. Let's listen to people's pain. And then secondly, let's, let's learn from the words that Jesus speaks. Who's the first person he addresses in the story? Who does he speak to? The Pharisees and the scribes. Those are the first, that's the first people he speaks to. It's the religious people. 
It's the people who are coming to Jesus with the questions, saying, what's your judgment against her and people like her? Now, I want to acknowledge that, that they come with a severely malicious intent. And again, I just want to reiterate and thank you that I did not hear malicious, angry intent in this community. So our intent is different, but I think we can learn from, as genuine seekers of Jesus, what to do in this kind of situation and, um, and how to respond to people who want to follow Christ. And so here's what he says. So Jesus stands up and he tells the religious leaders, I'll tell you what, let's go look in Leviticus at this particular verse. And I want to take apart this one word, homosexual. I want to exegete it and see what it meant then and what it means now. Is that what he does? Is that what he does? No, it's not what he does at all. Instead, he says, I'll tell you what, whoever's without sin can cast the first stone. And by saying that, he's saying the Old Testament is legitimate. Adultery is a bad thing. But the condemnation for it, the judgment for it, gets to be decided by the one who is without sin. And so are you the one without sin, Jesus says. Are you the one without sin? When we're talking about matters of gender and sexuality, are you Am I without sin? Jesus' call is a call to examine our own hearts. What is the holy sexuality in your own heart? Have you been completely chaste? Have you been only in relationship with one man, one woman, married, never sex outside of it. Within it, has your sex always been pure, never for power, never because you want something, never lusting after anyone else while you're at it? Are you completely pure? And if you are, beware lest you sound like the Pharisee who stands up and says, I thank you, God, that I'm not like one of them. Because the only appropriate posture before a holy God is, woe is me, have mercy on me, a sinner. The principle here in Jesus' first reaction is that we've all been born with a sin orientation. A sin orientation. Since Adam and Eve, we've all been born with a flesh that desires to sin. And so Jesus is not surprised And we should not be surprised that we are born with desires and ways of being oriented toward God and others that are out of alignment with God's goodness and God's perfection for us. That sin manifests itself in all kinds of internal and external desires. We fear other races. We violently exercise power. We lustfully desire both men and women. But those orientations, that sin orientation, it is not who you are. Listen to the identity that God gives you from Romans chapter 8. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons. You are adopted as sons and daughters. And by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him 
in order that we might be glorified with him. Do not be surprised that as children of God, you are born with ways that cause you to suffer. Our desire for sin is not God-given. It is a sin-given orientation. Before we turn to see what God has to say then, the sinless God has to say to the one who is caught in the very act. I, wanna, I want you to hear the story of a man who has been on both sides of, of this trap. He is, um, he's a pastor in England who shares his struggle with same-sex attraction publicly and articulates how he dies to himself by living a life of celibacy in Christ. Here's his story. I'm Sam Albury. I live and work in Maidenhead, and I'm a church pastor. I'm convinced what, what the Bible says on this issue is good because I'm convinced God is good. I'm convinced God is good because actually... Jesus has shown his goodness to me in his, his death and resurrection. I see the goodness of his, his words in, in so many areas of, of life. The one who, who made me and knows me better than I know myself is going to know what's good for me. The very best thing that God can do for anyone is to give them life in his son. And the Christian life is all about Jesus. And for as long as God is offering a relationship with Christ to anyone he is not anti-them. Uh, there are things God calls all of us to, to turn away from. There are things in, in all of our lives that we need to uh, to rethink and to, to kind of give over to God. But actually knowing Jesus is, is what it is all about and that is the greatest gift God can give us. And as long as that gift is being offered, and it is, God cannot truly be said to be anti-anyone. One of the things Jesus says that, that most, I guess, encourages me in this whole area, and I, I hope would encourage others in other areas too, is that Jesus said on one occasion that, that anyone who leaves uh, fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and homes and other things for him and for the sake of the gospel, even in this life, will receive a hundredfold in return. So although we have to give things up, to be Christian, although we have to turn away from certain things, leave certain things behind. Actually, we, we always, even in this life, receive far more back from Jesus than we ever give for him. And so, although there'll be certain kinds of relationships I'm, I'm not going to enter into as a Christian, um, I've received back from Jesus a whole wonderful other set of relationships. Um, within the, you know, being part of a Christian community, being part of a church family. Um, and so it's, it's never a bad deal to follow Jesus. And I commend that website, livingout.org, to you as well. There are other stories on there and really good biblical exegesis on there. Um, we've seen in Jesus the posture of humility We've seen him call religious people to uh, self-examination of the sin in their own hearts. And then we see Jesus speak to this, uh, the woman caught in the very act. He's just one-on-one -on -one with her. It's just the two of them. They're not at a dinner table. They're not in a crowd. He's not uh, going on Facebook and, um, and saying these things. He's just talking to her. And his first words are mercy. 
He says, neither do I condemn you. I hope you know that about Jesus, that he doesn't condemn you. Romans 8 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you as followers of Jesus, you can speak mercy to your friends and to your family. I wonder how healing it might be from someone, for someone who's been excluded from the church to feel the response and hear the response of someone and a church insider say to them, Neither do I condemn you. The gift of life is spoken in mercy by Jesus to an unrepentant woman, as far as we know. For those of us who feel trapped, I think we'd all feel a lot better if that was the last thing Jesus said. Neither do I condemn you. We're all sinners. We all have to walk away. By virtue of the sinless one declaring no condemnation, we can all go back to our life and to the desires that we were born with and do what they tell us to do. But that's not the end. The mercy statement, I love this, Larry said this. The mercy statement is the pause that gives the woman and gives us the opportunity to repent. It's the, the mercy is the pause. Then Jesus says, go and sin no more. It's a double negative in the Greek. It's very emphatic. It's like, go and don't ever sin again. Toward those who are walking out of the alignment with the way of Jesus, our call is to take the posture of bending down and extend both in, uh, in words, both mercy and an invitation to Jesus. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. So you don't have to have fancy answers. All you need is Jesus. The mercy of the Lord speaks, neither do I condemn you. And the righteousness of Jesus calls us to go and sin no more. We have a major sin orientation problem. And Jesus does not just sweep it under the rug. I know the word sin is really unpopular. I know that the homosexual community has rejected considering sexual orientation a sin. I know that. But we've asked, what does the Bible say about gender and sexuality? And I strongly believe that our loving, sacrificial, sinless God affirms the traditional biblical understanding of holy sexuality and calls anything outside of it sin. We've lost our theological understanding of original sin, and we have lost God's storyline that he came because he loves sinners— died for sin, and wants to be with us forever. So I feel your personal struggle about how to talk about this with friends and family. I feel the desire to stab it in a fork like in the little baby's mouth. I do affirm that God's good news is good news for everyone. Though I admit I really struggled with that when Michelle said that two weeks ago. Jesus said in John 10, 10, that I have come that you might have life and life abundantly. Here's the problem. I don't think we've, we have embraced that the abundant life God has for us is rich, both in mercy and in righteousness. The abundant life in Christ is not go to college, find someone to marry of the opposite sex, hopefully a virgin, get your career and going, buy a beautiful house, have a baby, Let's get a boat, and then we'll go to heaven. 
that's not the abundant life. That's so uncreative. God has so much more for you than that. Let me give you just one example where we've missed this. Do you know that the Bible calls singleness a gift and uses the word charisma like a spiritual gift? That singleness is supposed to be a gift both to the person and to the church. We've missed that. We don't invite well single people into our homes, into our families, on family vacations, to family birthday parties. Do you know that single people are intended to be God's charisma, his gift to you, and his gift to the church? You're missing out on the abundant life. All right. You will be able to speak the abundant life. The abundant, speak the abundant life. Lay out all the goodness on the platter. If you yourself have examined your sin orientation, have heard the mercy of Christ, have paused to repent, and are in Christ moving in a new direction, being transformed in his likeness. Then you will know the abundant life, and then you will have the abundant life to offer to others. Your story then might sound a little like mine. Here's a little bit of my story. If I were to talk to my friend on the phone, that night I just needed to hear his pain. Sometimes you just need to bend down and, you know, you're friends with these people. You're going to talk to him again, I hope. But here's what it might sound like. Friend, I know a man who doesn't condemn me. I know a man who came to save me, and I want to introduce you to him. I've been set free from impulses and desires that I was born with. Issues with control, issues with exaggeration, with people-pleasing, and they were not good for me. I want you to know that I struggled with him. So neither do I condemn you in the places that you struggle But I do want to extend you to the invitation to meet the person that set me free. His name is Jesus. We can read his stories together if you want. You could come to church with me and, or into my, you could come to my life group and meet the people who know Jesus like I do, who've also been set free and continue to struggle. That's what it, that's what it might sound like to bend down, to offer mercy to pause and to invite people to Jesus, his mercy and his righteousness. Remember that the Holy Spirit is at work here and the Holy Spirit is the one who works conviction in us. So here's a summary of our answer to your questions. God created gender, male and female, and he designed the two distinct and and different genders together to represent the image of God in the world. He calls us to a holy sexuality, either a celibacy or a faithfulness in marriage. Anything other than that holy sexuality is an expression of our sin orientation. So Jesus would have us respond to sexual sin as to all sin. With humility, with mercy, and with an invitation to meet Jesus. Love will win. That love wins, that's a Bob Goff saying. Lovely believer. Love wins. The love of a holy God is expressed toward an unholy people. It was expressed in the picture of a rainbow that promised that God would not destroy forever 
a people rife with sin. And so the holy God came and sent his only son to be destroyed by us and for us. That we who believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. You're invited to the mercy and the righteousness of Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord, would we be image bearers for you in our gender and in an exercise of holy sexuality that we would be incapable of living except for the transforming power of your Holy Spirit within us. Thank you for the good news that you are not going to leave us in our sin orientation. You are going to transform us into Christ likeness. And I admit that we are impatient for that. We long for the day when we are fully made right with you and made right with one another. Would we practice what your will is for heaven on earth in the way that we listen, the way that we extend mercy, and the way that we invite people to you and to the righteous life that you have called us to? Would you truly set us free? If the Son has set us free, we are free indeed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.